The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. I want to invite all of you now to open up your Bible to Luke chapter 19, where we're going to spend some time in God's Word together, looking at a very important time in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ and an appropriate passage to prepare us for Resurrection Sunday, which is next Sunday. So we'll be in Luke 19, 28 to 44. If you want to follow along in our bulletin, provided an outline of where we're going there, if it helps you. Uh, we're gonna you, twice a week, a month we have children's church, so we'll resume children's church uh, the first week of April. We have a fifth Sunday next week, which happens only four times a year, and it's going to be Resurrection or Easter Sunday. We know uh, that's typically what we call it, and next week we'll be in the big sanctuary celebrating the Lord's resurrection as a church family. Uh, Bob had mentioned earlier, I think, the invitations back around the table where you could invite a friend or a neighbor uh, to come next week and to uh, worship with us, to hear the Word of God, to hear the true meaning of Christ's death and resurrection, and also inviting our guests to a yummy meal afterwards. I had the privilege of doing that this week. There's a neighbor that lives to my left, and he's not a believer. He's a recovering Catholic, he's told me, whatever that means. Um, so, and he's retired, and so I went and knocked on his door with him and his wife this week and invited them to come visit us Resurrection Sunday next week and told them about it. And probably hasn't been to church in decades, and I told them, uh, you do have to come to listen to me preach for 50 minutes. You have to listen to one of my sermons. And if it's a really bad sermon, you get lunch for free. So he thought, hey, that's, that's not bad. Hey, you can even add extra dessert if you don't like it. So uh, we'll see if. Our friends come, but just wanted to encourage you to do the same. Be praying. Just a good opportunity. Uh, also, because of uh, Resurrection Sunday, Easter, we typically don't have Sunday school hour, so there's no Sunday school classes next week, so we'll just start at the worship service at 11 o'clock together. So let's go ahead and look at uh, Luke 19:28 through 44. This passage here is known, some of your Bibles might say, the triumphal entry. Uh, Historically, it's also known as Palm Sunday. Both titles are appropriate. I do want to read the passage again. Tim read it a little earlier. And then also, I want to read an excerpt from the Gospel of John. Just so you know, uh, this event in the life of Jesus Christ is highly significant. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all record this event of the triumphal entry. They didn't record, all four Gospels didn't record everything that Jesus did. You might find an incident that happened in one Gospel that is not recorded in another. So there's really just a few things or incidents or things Jesus said that are actually recorded in all four Gospels. This is one of those few, like the resurrection of Christ is recorded in all four Gospels. And the triumphal entry that we're looking at today, Palm Sunday, is recorded in all four Gospels. So it was Definitely a climactic event that happened in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have opportunity to see some of the highlights of that this morning. But follow along as I read Luke's version. And if you read Mark, John, uh, all all four Gospels together, you would see details added by the other three Gospel writers. And I will make reference to some of those as it is pertinent as we go through, but primarily we will be going with Luke's account. So starting in verse 28, this is the end of his ministry. 
And this is two week, This happened two weeks before his resurrection. And that's why I chose this passage. I wanted to be reminded as a church of what happened, what was going on in the ministry of Jesus Christ historically 2,000 years ago. And that's what I tried to do last week when he healed that leper. That was at the end of his ministry, probably in the last month or so of his ministry. And we pretty much know this is two weeks before Resurrection Sunday. And it says in verse 28, after he had said these things, what things? Well, he had just been in Zacchaeus' home. The incident with Zacchaeus happened at the end of Jesus' ministry. After he had said these things at Zacchaeus' home in Jericho, which is very close to Jerusalem, Jesus was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, If these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground, and your children Within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So, this is actually a week before Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, flip to go ahead to the Gospel of John to give you a little bit more of the context before we look at more details in Luke. John is actually the chronological gospel. Luke isn't necessarily always in chronological order. And so John chapter 12 gives us a few more details, kind of laying the foundation to give us more context of to see what was going on here. Because in Luke 19, what we just read, it talked about a crowd. Well, how big was that crowd? Who, who was in that crowd? Well, it's significant. It matters. And John is key in telling us who's in that crowd. If you actually go back to John chapter 11, it's kind of the same time frame. Uh, In John chapter 11, verse 1, it says, There was a certain man uh, who was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. Bethany was a city only two miles away from Jerusalem. In the city of Bethany, very close to Jerusalem, Jesus' best friends lived. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And Jesus would probably frequent that house for protection, for comfort, to get a meal, to hide. We know that he did that at the end of his ministry. And so here uh, in the city of Bethany where Lazarus lived, uh, Lazarus was sick, Lazarus died, Lazarus was dead for four days. His sisters come and plead with Jesus 
to heal Jesus. Jesus comes to the tomb where Lazarus is buried and decaying. And in verse 43 of John chapter 11, Jesus approached the tomb. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth. Lazarus came out of the tomb, bound hand and foot with wrappings. And his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what Jesus had done, believed in him. So already there was a crowd of people in Bethany at the time of the miracle of Lazarus. And there were eyewitnesses to this amazing, unbelievable, unprecedented resurrection miracle that Jesus had performed. This is at the end of his ministry, at the end of three and a half years, where already he has amassed miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle in Jerusalem, in Samaria, in Galilee, all of Galilee. People knew the reputation and the name of Jesus Christ. Many had been healed. And they've been seeing these miracles for now years And now one of the greatest miracles of all, a man dead four days raised right in front of their eyes at this tomb in Bethany. So many of these Jews, they're they're excited. They can't believe it. They're celebrating. It says they believed in him, that Jesus was something significant. Verse 46, but, but in contrast to those who believed in him and were excited and enthusiastic about what he just did, some of them, some of these people who saw the miracle of Lazarus went to the Pharisees, probably in Jerusalem. What were they doing? Tattletales. Apparently, they knew the Pharisees uh, already had a bounty on Jesus' head. They've already tried to kill him, and they've chased him out of the city previously. And they go to the Pharisees. They're informants. Told the Pharisees the things which Jesus had done. You won't believe this. Jesus just raised a man from the dead. And the Pharisees, they were not excited. They were not impressed. They were jealous and nervous and filled with even more and more rage and hatred towards Jesus. We must put this man's ministry to a stop. Verse 47, therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. That's a formal gathering. That's a conspiratorial meeting that they had headed by Caiaphas and the other Sanhedrin members of the Sadducees conspiring and planning how they can stop Jesus. Once and for all, we need to enact a plan. All the while, the Pharisees hated his guts as well. And they were trying to enact a plan to stop Jesus. And they weren't on the same page because the Sadducees and Pharisees hated each other. But here they finally come together. Verse 53 of John 11 says, from that day on. What day on? From the day that the Pharisees and Sadducees found out that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and that many people were believing in him. From that day on. That was a significant moment. This is just a couple weeks uh, before Jesus' death and resurrection. From that day on, verse 53, they planned together, the Sadducees and the Pharisees prior to this who were enemies for the most part. No, they're friends. They planned together to kill Jesus. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly around Jerusalem, but was literally hiding out in various cities, hiding out in Bethany. Verse 55, now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many people started to go up to Jerusalem. So that's key, verse 55. This is the context. This is the end of Jesus' ministry on earth. He's now age 33. He's been teaching publicly for about three and a half years. He is now entering his last week of ministry, And it just so happens to be during the greatest feast of the year, which was Passover feast. And at Passover, Jews from all over Israel, all over the world, as far as Dan up in the north and down south and wherever Jews were, they're coming from all over uh, to congregate at the capital city of Jerusalem at the temple during the time of the Passover. 
And many of the Jews would come weeks early. So literally, if you went to Jerusalem a couple of weeks prior to Passover, even in this day, the city was impacted. Josephus says there could have been more than two million people in the city during the week of Passover. Two million in that tiny little city. And so it's key. Verse 55 says the pastor of the Jews was near and many went up to Jerusalem. So Jesus is going to enter into the city for his last week during the time of Passover. And when he enters into the city, there are just crowds and crowds and masses of people everywhere. They are there to celebrate the Passover where an innocent lamb would be slaughtered as a substitute for the forgiveness of sin. A literal lamb. Jesus would enter as God's Lamb of God to do that very thing. Okay, go to John chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover. Now, it's a week before his death and resurrection. He, Jesus came to Bethany. That's two miles away from where Jerusalem is. And he's about to go into Jerusalem. While he's there in Bethany, a bunch of people found out that Jesus was in Bethany. And so people are coming from all over the place surrounding Bethany, probably surrounding Lazarus's home, trying to hunt Jesus down uh, in light of the euphoria and the news and the enthusiasm that went out that Jesus raised a man from the dead. So not only are the people there who saw the resurrection of Lazarus, there are more and more people there who are now clamoring to see Jesus who heard about this amazing miracle. And so in chapter 12, verse 9 of John, it says, the large crowd of the Jews, the large, huge, massive crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there in Bethany. And so they came. They came to Bethany, not just for Jesus' only sake, but they also uh, wanted to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So now you have, just a week before Jesus' resurrection, just this huge, massive crowd that is uh, come down on the city of Bethany, just two miles away from Jerusalem. And people are clamoring to see Jesus. In conjunction with that, you've got another growing, swelling mass of people just two miles away in the city of Jerusalem because it's the Passover feast. People coming from all over the world, literally, of the Jewish people. So in verse 12 of John 12, it says, On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, that's a different crowd. These are people who are just coming for the feast. And they're in Jerusalem. And they also got wind that Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem. So Jesus, indeed, at the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, a week before his resurrection, he is coming from Bethany with a huge mass of people with him, following him as his face is resolute to go to Jerusalem. And he's coming with this huge, massive crowd. And waiting for him in Jerusalem is another massive crowd to welcome him. And these are pilgrims who've come to celebrate the Passover. And that's why Josephus could say, it could be an excess of two million people. And a little city like Jerusalem can hardly accommodate that kind of a crowd. So it's a standing room only. And that's the picture and imagery I wanted you to have in your mind as Jesus going back now uh, to Luke chapter 19 as we look at this story of the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday when Jesus is leaving Bethany and entering in with one huge massive crowd of people thousands upon thousands upon thousands as he enters into the city of Jerusalem being welcomed by thousands and thousands and thousands maybe a million or more and the crowd goes crazy hysterical fever pitch in terms the text says all for shouting Shouting, 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 imperfect tense and present tense, continually shouting, continually shouting, not relenting consistently. And if you've ever seen news clips of people in the Middle East and the 
that part of the world, when they get excited about something or celebrate something, or it's just this these mobs of screaming people of, at a fever pitch that's almost frightening and intimidating. And that's what's going on here. Okay, one more thing, actually, that I want to do before we actually look at the text to prepare the setting a little bit more, highlighting the significance of this event in Jesus' ministry. Go to Matthew chapter 8. Uh, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 8 and then Matthew chapter 9 and then Matthew chapter 12, just looking at three phrases and three different verses to make a contrast. Okay, Jesus has been in ministry for three and a half years. Prior to this event, prior to this week, where Jesus, on the triumphal entry, as he goes in riding on this donkey, this baby male colt, and the masses of people are screaming out his name and son of David and calling him the king and Hosanna, Hosanna, praising Jesus and waving palm branches and throwing their garments down as the red carpet, welcoming him literally as king and Messiah. Jesus approaches the crowd. He doesn't fear the crowd. The crowd is not a threat to him. He actually welcomes their praise and adoration. He doesn't resist it at all. He welcomes this because he indeed is the king. He is the Messiah. And so from Jesus's point of view, this is his formal presentation and coronation to the nation of Israel that he indeed is the Messiah of the Old Testament. He is king. He owns that title in this event. And it is made public. This is in contrast to what he'd been doing for three and a half years. Look at Matthew chapter 8, verse 4. This is earlier, this is early on in Jesus' ministry. Uh, Matthew 8, 4, it says, Jesus, verse 2, a leper came to Jesus, bowed down before Jesus, said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand. He touched the leper, which you're not supposed to do. And Jesus said, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately, his leprosy was gone. Here's the interesting phrase in verse 4. And Jesus said to him, now you would think, Jesus just pulled off a miracle. Jesus is the Messiah and said, okay, go tell everybody that you know and tell them I am the Messiah and I'm a miracle worker. I mean, that's good marketing, right? Good publicity. And he does just the opposite. Jesus said to the leper, see that you tell no one. That's weird. Huh? This amazing miracle. And Jesus says, see that you tell no one. Then go to chapter 9 of Matthew. Uh, verse 30. Starting in verse 27, as Jesus went, again, this is earlier in his ministry, and Jesus went on from there, and there were two blind men. They followed Jesus, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came up to Jesus, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. And then he, he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done according to your faith. And instantly their eyes were opened. They could see. Poof! Miracle. Again, unprecedented, unbelievable. Miracle. And Jesus, get this, sternly warned them. That's a very strong word. Sternly warned. Shaking his finger at them. Almost a rebuke. Sternly warned them about what? He sternly warned them saying, See that no one knows about this miracle. I know it's amazing, you can see, it's time to celebrate, but whatever you do, don't tell anybody about this miracle or that I did it. Whatever you do. 
Promise me that. Well, we promise, we promise. Verse 31. But they went out and they spread the news about him everywhere all throughout the land. They were just too excited. So it's kind of weird. Why does he keep saying this? And then one more, Matthew 12. Again, this is early on in his ministry. Uh, departing from there, verse 9. Um, he heals a man. And then in verse 15, he gets rebuked for healing people. And Jesus, verse 15 of Matthew 12, aware of this, he withdrew from there. Many people followed him. Get this. And he healed them all. Many followed him. He healed every single one of them. It's amazing. Verse 16. And he warned them not to tell anybody who he was. And I could pick out verse after verse after verse. He did this to the apostles after the transfiguration. Don't tell anybody about it. That amazing uh, panorama 3D scene that you just saw. About me and my glory. Don't tell anybody. There's even a passage there where he talks to demons. And the demons cry out, Jesus, Son of God, Messiah. And he says, don't tell anybody. Shh. Early on in his ministry, don't tell anybody I'm the Messiah. And it's like, why Why is Jesus doing that? Why does he keep telling everybody, no, no, no? Because this is way before his death and resurrection. Jesus came, Jesus didn't come. Jesus was not born. And he didn't come into the world to do miracles. Jesus didn't come into the world the first time to eradicate poverty. Poverty. He came to die for sin. That is the meaning of his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. That's what it's all about. That was the focus. That was the meaning that interpreted everything. Everything that happened prior to Jesus' death and resurrection was preliminary and a sign and simply a pointer to that is the meaning of who Jesus is and why he came. So Jesus didn't want to go people going around prematurely saying, oh, Jesus, the healer or Jesus, the free food giver. Because he was more than just a free food giver and a healer. The, the Old Testament prophets were healers. Jesus was more than that. Moses gave out free food. Jesus was more than that. All those preliminary miracles were supposed to be pointing to something greater. And that was who he was as the God man and why he came. He came to die and rise for sinners. Everything else defines that and interprets that. And if you have a Jesus without the resurrection of the death and his resurrection and the reality of who he is as the God-man, you have a false Jesus. And you don't understand the Christian story. You don't have the good news. So if you only have a Jesus who heals, you don't have the true story. That's a counterfeit. If you only have a, a Jesus who gives bread and is a social worker, you don't have the true Jesus. That is a counterfeit. If you only have a Jesus who's a political activist, you have a counterfeit Jesus. Because everything he did politically, socially, in terms of miracles, uh, providing food, providing healing, was all to interpret and point to his death and resurrection as savior from sin. So he didn't want that to be derailed in any way by humans because that's what we do. We mess everything up and misinterpret everything all the time. And God, Jesus knew that was human nature. There were many times where people tried to rush him to make him king early on in his ministry. In John 6, that's what it said. He did a miracle and the crowds were excited and it said they tried to force him to be king. And Jesus would have none of it. He ran. He hid. No, now is not the time. Now is not the time. 
And what the Jews were looking for primarily in Jesus' day, yes, they were looking for a Messiah, but they were, and they were also looking for a king, but they weren't looking for a spiritual Messiah and spiritual king first and foremost. That a very narrow, myopic, superficial, crass view of the Messiah and who Jesus was. They were like Judas and the zealots who wanted to just utilize Jesus' miracle power to accomplish their political ends or their social ends or their personal ends. It was all short-sighted. The emphasis wasn't on spiritual ministry, and Jesus was all about the emphasis of spiritual ministry. He came, first and foremost, to die for sinners, the forgiveness of sin. Not some humanistic political or social agenda. But now, finally, after saying, no, 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 don't tell anybody who I am. No, 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 don't tell anybody I am the Messiah. Now, finally, with his perfect timing, knowing that it is time to culminate his ministry with his death and resurrection in Jerusalem at the Passover, he welcomes these millions of people declaring that he indeed is the Messiah of the Old Testament. Now is the time. Now is coronation time. Now he is right on schedule. And hence this very significant event. And that's why Jesus welcomes and embraces their praise here. Let's go ahead and look at it. Three points that try to uh, surround the content of this great narrative, this true historical story around Jesus' triumphal entry, and I titled the sermon, Jesus, King of Glory, because everything about this story just reveals his glory and who he is, that he's more than a man, he's more than a prophet. He is the God-man, he is the eternal King of kings. He indeed is all-glorious like no other. Let's go ahead and look at verses 28 to 35, which is the first point there, and that's the preparation of the king. As Jesus is prepared, actually, really, God the Father is preparing Jesus formally for his presentation to the nation of Israel and to all peoples in terms of his coronation as here is your king. Here is your Old Testament Messiah. Here's your Old Testament Savior, just as I promised. And so the details of 28 to 35 tell us about his preparation of his coronation. Verse 28, after he'd said these things, like I said, this is just after being with Zacchaeus. This is just after being anointed with oil in preparation for his death. This is Shortly after raising Lazarus from the dead, some amazing, significant things just happened. After he said these things, he's in the area of Bethany, just a couple of miles away. He was going, so he's on the move. Verse 28 says he was going on ahead, going to Jerusalem. He is resolute. His face was set for Jerusalem. He knew it was time to die. In Matthew 16 21, he told his apostles, I'm going to Jerusalem, I am going to Jerusalem, and I am going to be uh, arrested, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be murdered, killed, crucified. And then the apostles, they're beginning to panic. Oh, Lord, no. And then they stopped listening then, because then he said, and I will rise again from the dead three days later. They didn't hear that part. So he told them categorically, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I'm going to do what I came to do. I'm going to fulfill my mission. Jesus was born to die. Jesus was born to die. I know growing up I heard stories about Jesus. Some mythical, some out of the Bible, misrepresented or not explained in full context. So I kind of knew the, the mythical Jesus, the um, colloquial Jesus, but not the biblical Jesus. So for 19 years growing up hearing and, you know, having some fascination with Jesus and respect for Jesus. I always felt sorry for Jesus around the time of Easter. 
Because I thought, oh, what a, that was too, you know, that was too bad that he got arrested and died. Man, if he could just, man, it seemed like he could do a miracle and get out of it. Why, why did that happen? I don't understand. I mean, I never understood that. Because I didn't understand why he came, he came to die. He was not a helpless victim. It was a purposeful death on his part. That's what the Bible teaches. So it's very significant in verse 28. It says, he was going, he is leading the crowd this time. He's going ahead of everybody, going to Jerusalem for the purpose of dying as the Savior of the world. Dying for your sins, dying for my sins. As a substitute. So, he wasn't a helpless victim. His his, uh, betrayal and arrest and trial, that didn't catch him off guard or by surprise. He knew what was going on. This was predicted in Scripture. This was planned in the Old Testament. This is planned in eternity past. It's amazing. John chapter 2, verse 9, even at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the very beginning of his ministry, when he cleansed the temple three years prior, he announced to everybody there in the temple, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. So he announced then, he did that very rarely, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again from the dead. So Jesus knew he was going to die and he knew why he was going to die. At his birth, going back even more in time, in Luke 2.15, Simeon, uh, the, the God used as a prophet, holding baby Jesus, prophesied regarding Jesus, why he came into the world. Jesus came to die, said Simeon, and Mary's heart will be pierced with sorrow. That was a reference to the death of Jesus, son of Mary. His death was announced at his birth 33 years prior to Jesus going into Jerusalem to die. And like I said, even in the Old Testament, all those prophecies that predicted his death very explicitly. Isaiah chapter 53 explicitly says 800 years before Christ was even born, predicted that Jesus, the Messiah, would die. He would be crushed. He would be afflicted. He would shed blood. God the Father would punish him. It's referring to his death explicitly 800 years before he was born. A thousand years before he was born. David penned Psalm 22, predicting in detail that the Messiah would be pierced in the hands and the feet. Jesus came to die 4,000 years before Jesus was born. Genesis 3.15, the first prophecy in the Bible. God predicted that the Messiah would come to overcome the curse, to crush the devil, and while he did that, that he himself would be pierced or crushed. Jesus' death was predicted 4,000 years before he was ever born. And then Peter in the book of Revelation in Acts chapter 4 says that Jesus' death was predicted, planned, in eternity passed by God himself. Isn't that amazing? So when it says in verse 28 that Jesus was going to Jerusalem, it meant he was going there to die in accordance with God's wonderful plan of salvation. It goes on in verse 29, the preparation. When Jesus approached Bethphage and Bethany, uh, again, these cities are very close to Jerusalem, near the mount that is called Olivet. So the Mount of Olives is very close to the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem kind of sits up on a hill. And then, there's the, and then there's a valley, and then there's the Mount of Olives where Jesus would go frequently to pray. And I just remember a couple of years ago having the great privilege to go to Israel, to Jerusalem, and just and be on the Mount of Olives, and be in Jerusalem, and stand by the Kadron Valley, and, and see the Mount of Olives adjacent to the city of Jerusalem, and just thinking, wow. And being taken by a tour guide, saying, this is where the triumphal entry happened. Coming down the descent of the Mount of Olives, absolutely amazing. And as Jesus is coming down the descent of the Mount of Olives, he can see this beautiful city of Jerusalem. He could see the beautiful temple. He could see the mass of crowds all before his eyes. 
So verse 29, he's coming down with this huge, massive crowd ready to meet another huge, massive crowd near the mount that is called Olivet. And he sent two of his disciples, probably two of his apostles. So he's got his his 12 apostles probably circling him very close around him, protecting him from the crowd. He takes two of these apostles, gives them a mission. Look at his mission. He said to these two disciples, go into the village that's ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on what a colt is the younger baby male offspring of a donkey, mommy donkey. You'll find a colt. One of the gospels says you'll find a donkey and the colt tied up on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, and as, they, as the two disciples were untying the colt as they just entered the village, its owners, literally in verse 33, it says, the, the lords, the lords of the colt, meaning the masters, those who owned the colt, the lords, kurios, and as they were untying the colt, the lords of the colt said to the disciples, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord. Same word. The Lord has need of it. And so they said, oh, you can have it. Take it. Verse 45, uh, 35 says they brought it to Jesus. So they got the little colt, took it to Jesus. Then the apostles probably, we know the disciples, took their coats off, put it on the bare-backed colt. That colt has never been ridden before. Never been, it was pristine, it was pure, unbroken, prepared for Jesus. How appropriate, the King of Kings, that he would sit on an unused, untainted colt as he is brought in to be proclaimed as King of Kings, which is so typical of Jesus at the end of his life. All these untainted, unused, uh, pristine things that uh, the Father reserved for him to preserve his glory, the unused tomb that he was born in, right? I mean, that he was buried in. And the unused colt that he rides on. So so appropriate for the Lord Jesus. I put there on this point that the preparation of the king, omniscience on display. His omniscience is on display. Omniscience means you know everything. Jesus knew everything. Jesus was omniscient. Some people question that. Some people think, yeah, Jesus was a great prophet. He was a great rabbi. He was a great teacher. I'll never forget when I was in college at a college, a Christian college, small Christian college in Santa Barbara as a freshman. Uh, my Old Testament professor, who had a critical view of Scripture, said to maybe 150, 200 people, quote, and I still remember it to this day, Jesus knew nothing more than the average Jew of his day. I was horrified. I mean, as a brand new Christian, I knew that wasn't true. Why do you, why do you students think Jesus knew anything more than the average Jew of his day? And so, and that was a theme that he kept reiterating. Jesus didn't know anything. He wasn't omniscient. He didn't know anything more. As a matter of fact, he made mistakes. He was ignorant. He said the wrong thing at times. And so we kept hearing that one of the wrong things that Jesus said was Jesus said that the mustard seed is the smallest seed. See, he made a mistake. He didn't know everything. And so the professor was claiming that Jesus was not omniscient. He didn't know everything. He could even make mistakes. And scripture is clear that that is so not true. That is blasphemous of our Lord, glorious Lord Jesus Christ, who knew everything. He was God in a body. The omniscient one of the universe chose to 
know things as the Father revealed it to him while he was in humiliation during his ministry. But Peter said after the resurrection to the Lord Jesus, Lord, you know everything. So Jesus had omniscience. Jesus could read the hearts of people repeatedly in the gospel. Jesus knowing their thoughts. Jesus knowing their heart. And here you see some of the glory of Jesus' omniscience as he makes this amazing uh, prophecy in revealing his omniscience in this command that he's giving these two disciples. And so one commentator very helpfully says there are six things that Jesus predicted that were fulfilled to a T in these two sentences as he was talking to his apostles. Here are the six amazing miracles that were fulfilled of these prophetic proclamations revealing Jesus' omniscience. Jesus told them, you will find a cult in a specific village. And that's exactly what happened. Go into this village, you will find a cult. They went in there, that village, and they found it. That's amazing. Not only that, you will find a male cult, specifically. And that is exactly what they found. You'll find it as you enter the village, not as you leave the village. And they found it as they entered the village. The cult will be tied up. The cult was tied up. How how did Jesus know all these details? Because he's omniscient, the omniscient king of glory. He also makes this note, and no one has ever sat upon that cult. Now, there's no way that the apostles, by just looking at a cult, can know, well, no one's ever sat on that one. They couldn't possibly know that. But Jesus did. He's omniscient. Never sat on it. And then, (laughs) amazingly, he says, and someone's probably going to ask you, why are you untying that cult? And so when they got there and they started untying it, somebody said, why are you untying that cult? So that's Jesus' omniscience on display. Isn't that amazing? Jesus knows everything. Uh, it goes on when he, they approached the city. He said to his two disciples, verse 30, going into the village ahead of you, there as you enter you will find a cult. Now, regarding that cult, that animal, look at Zechariah in your Old Testament. Towards the end of the Old Testament, just before Matthew. Zechariah chapter 9. So hundreds of years before Jesus was born, There are actually specific prophecies about Jesus in Zechariah. Several regarding his the week of his death. And here's one of them, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Here's a prediction regarding the coming Messiah. God is talking to the nation of Israel. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Zion is just another word for Jerusalem, uh, the height of Jerusalem. So God's speaking to Jerusalem and the the Jews in particular, O daughter of Zion. The, The Jews who have a very special relationship with Yahweh. Rejoice greatly. Here's a time to rejoice. And that's why uh, when people are welcoming Jesus on Palm Sunday, it says they were rejoicing exceedingly. It was a time of joy. This is fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout and try. In the, the, the Gospels, it says they were shouting. Shouting with joy. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. It says literally they were shouting. Fulfilling this prophecy. Shouting in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. They called him a king. He's coming to you. Your king is coming. He is just and endowed with salvation. See, the emphasis of Jesus' ministry the first time was on spiritual ministry, salvation for sinners, not the political emphasis that we will see in the future when he comes the second time. But the first time, he came as the humble Savior. He is just. He's endowed with salvation. He is humble. He is humble, mounted on a donkey. You can't get any more humble than a donkey. Just the opposite would have been riding in victory as a valiant warrior on this huge, massive war horse. Right? 
And that's what great generals did when they conquered somebody and they'd come and pride and declaiming their victory and they're riding on a massive stallion of a horse and this is the exact opposite jesus coming in humility offering salvation to sinners i am your savior your king messiah of the old testament so everything about this is just accentuating and highlighting the humility of jesus christ as the blessed savior even on a colt the foal of a donkey so this is a direct fulfillment of zechariah chapter 9 this had to happen this had to happen you know it's kind of interesting this is the only time we read about jesus ever riding on some kind of animal throughout his ministry He's walking everywhere. Talk about humility. He just walked everywhere. But how appropriate that on his coronation, as he's formally presented as king, he is riding on this colt. The formal presentation and fulfillment of Scripture. The Jews knew this passage. They knew Zechariah. This is what they were looking for. But he came humbly as the humble Savior. It goes on, verse 31. If anyone asks you, what are you... Oh, why are you untying it? You shall say the Lord, the Lord has need of it, the Lord. So those who were sent away found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners, the Lord's said to them, these are no doubt friends of Jesus, or they knew who Jesus was. They knew Jesus was Lord. And they revered Jesus as Lord. And that's why when they said the Lord has need of it, whoever these people were, they knew, yes, we own this colt. We own these donkeys. But you know what? We surrender it to the Lord. Yes, we own it, but we really don't own it. We are merely stewards of everything God has given us because the Lord Jesus, he owns everything, doesn't he? That's what the scriptures say. God owns everything. He owns all the cattle on all the hills of the earth. We are merely stewards of everything. So we can't cling on too tightly to anything. Because God owns it all. Jesus owns it all. We are just called to be faithful stewards. And that's true here. You've got these willing disciples who don't hold on tight-fisted. They let go. The Lord needs it. We will give it to Him. We will render it in worship to Him. Kind of like when He needed a room for His Last Supper. And the person that owned that room willingly gave it to Jesus for the Last Supper. Rendering worship to the King. And whoever owned that garden on the Garden of Gethsemane, that private garden to pray and let Jesus use it. Rendering worship to the King. Because he needs it. We need to do the same. Rendering worship to Jesus as king. He owns it all. And then verse 35. They brought the colt to Jesus. Fought through the crowds. Take their coats. This is a bare-backed colt. They throw their coats and their clothes on top of it to make a nice padded seat for the king. And And Jesus didn't just climb up on that colt. It says that his disciples, probably the apostles... And these are strong Galilean fishermen and hard work. They grabbed Jesus as the king and they lifted him up in a, a victory kind of a way and they put him, they mounted him on that colt. You are king. And that's why John chapter 12 says that right after that happened, when it says the apostles or the disciples picked him up and mounted him on that colt, it says they didn't even realize what they were doing at that time on that day. But after his glorification, after the resurrection, the apostles were enlightened with the Holy Spirit. The light went on and they realized that God was using them to be a part of fulfilling prophecy right out of Zechariah chapter 9. That we had the privilege of hoisting and lifting the God of the universe up to help him get on his cult to be presented as king. Isn't that amazing? Absolutely amazing. What wonderful privileges that the apostles had at times. So that's the first point, the preparation of the king. So now Jesus is prepared. He is suited as the humble savior of a king about to be presented to the nation of Israel after 4,000 years of history and hundreds and hundreds of prophecy predicting that he would do 
just that. So look at verse 36 to 40. And now this is the formal presentation proper, the presentation of the king. Prophecy on display. So Jesus is now on this colt. And he starts riding this colt. And as he was going, they, that's the crowds. The crowds with him that came from Bethany, thousands and thousands. And the crowd also that he's approaching and seeing in Jerusalem, which is up to, who knows, maybe a million. They were spreading their coats on the, on the road, taking their clothes and throwing them down. Literally what they're doing, they're rolling out the red carpet for the king. Behold our king, here comes the king. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the, on the road. John chapter 12, Matthew, Mark tell us, not only were they throwing their coats on the ground, welcoming and embracing Jesus as king, they're also shouting at the top of their lungs, calling him uh, son of David, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And they just continue to repeat these frames repeatedly at a, a fever pitch. No doubt the leaders of Jerusalem can hear this cacophonous sound in the background. Echoing over and over and every time it reverberates, it just boils their blood all the more about this Jesus they despise and want to kill in silence. And they can't as the crowds continue to give testimony for God and Jesus and his glory. And they're they're doing it for the most part in ignorance. Yes, they want Jesus as king, but they don't want him as savior, spiritual king. They want him as political, physical, material, temporal king to do their deed. Not only did they crucify him in ignorance, they worship him and welcome him in ignorance. And Jesus knows that he embraces their welcome because he indeed he is the king. Not only are they shouting and throwing down their clothes and rolling out the red carpet, it says those other three gospels that they were waving branches in celebration. And John tells us they were huge, massive palm branches that they're waving for the king, appropriate for the king. And all throughout the Old Testament, uh, palm branches were used for various things, uh, sometimes worship of God. Other times for celebration, even in Jesus' day and shortly thereafter, the Jews just identified with the palm tree and the palm branch as a sign of victory, but also as a sign of vitality and of life and immortality because the palm tree is so unique, living for over 200 years at a time. Always seems to be green, even in parched deserts, always giving life. And so they're celebrating Jesus Savior, victorious King, the one who gives life, the one who gives life. As a matter of fact, one of the Gospels tells us that they're crying out, not just blessed, but Matthew says they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, the Hebrew and Aramaic phrase saying, God, save us, save us now. So there's some acknowledgement that he is unique. Calling him Savior, waving those palm branches. I wanted to bring a bunch of palm branches today. Couldn't find any in my neighborhood. Actually, I did. Huge, massive, tall palm trees, and I, I didn't want to climb up 50 feet on that palm tree. Plus, I'd probably make the neighbor mad if I start desecrating their palm tree. So I drove around the neighborhood, and just they stick out wherever they are because you can find them here and there. They're just beautiful. They are unique. They are, they're an awesome tree. And I, was, I started looking at the branches. The branches are like 20 feet long. Wow. They are huge. They are majestic. They are royal. They are regal. How appropriate for Jesus, the royal king. So kids, when you're going home today and you're in the car, try to find, instead of trying to find VWs, uh, all the way home and count how many, see how many palm trees you can find as you're going home. They have palm trees in Israel even to this day, and they were a common tree of appreciation. So they're waving these palm branches. Verse 37, and as soon as he was approaching, he gets nearer and nearer the city of Jerusalem, near the, 
uh, descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples. This isn't the apostles. This is just everybody. Everybody who had been exposed to and heard of his ministry for three and a half years. Thousands and thousands of people uh, began to converge on him, but also part the way like a river as they let the king go down the red carpet. They began to praise God over and over, and they did it with great joy, great joy, great joy, with loud voices. Remember that key word right here, with great joy and praise, in total contrast of what happens just a few minutes later. Where Jesus isn't rejoicing with great joy and celebrating, Jesus hears all this praise an acclamation and great joy. And what does he do? He weeps. You've got a weeping Savior in the midst of joyful multitudes. What an irony. Because they missed the boat. Praising God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which he had seen. See, they just, oh, here's the miracle worker. Here's the miracle worker. Here's the miracle. I need another miracle. So they're worshiping really in ignorance. But they are cross-secting with truth as they're quoting Old Testament truth, shouting Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So they even quote in verse 38, they quote from Psalm 118 and attributing that to the Lord Jesus. That verse should be attributed really to, to Yahweh of the Old Testament, the God of Israel. So even Jesus is being acknowledged as the coming Messiah and also the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. Psalm 18 is part of the Hillel that was uh, recited and prayed during the Passover time of celebration. How appropriate as everything comes together in fulfillment of God's plan. So just amazing praise, great joy, celebration. Jesus is presented as king. And then you got verse 39. But some of the Pharisees. See, those are the enemies. The ones that Jesus said in John 7, they hate me. They hate me. They will try to kill me. These were the leaders of Jerusalem. These were the leaders of Israel. These were the professional Bible teachers. These of all people, the Pharisees should have been the ones to acknowledge Jesus as king, to recognize him from the Old Testament. He fulfills everything to a T. They should have been leading the charge, praising Jesus, calling out, blessed is Jesus, son of David, king of the Old Testament, Hosanna in the highest. He is the one. They should have been welcoming more than anybody that Jesus is king, but instead they're doing just the opposite. This is why Jesus is grieved and he begins to cry and weep. Amidst the celebration, some of the Pharisees in the crowd shout, and they had to shout loud. They had to be, to get access to Jesus in the midst of a million plus people, these Pharisees were very intentional because they had to fight through the crowds, get close enough in earshot of Jesus to be able to scream loud enough to get his attention to make sure that Jesus heard them and he did. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Shut them up. That's what the, what the Pharisees were saying. Can you believe that? Verse 40. It's amazing that Jesus even answered him. But Jesus answered, I tell you, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. What's the most silent, dead thing on planet Earth? A rock. That's how miraculous God is. And that's how much Jesus deserves praise. You shut them up, then God will make the, the rocks cry out and give me my due praise and adoration as Yahweh's Messiah. The rocks will cry out. So that's the presentation of Jesus as king as he's fulfilling prophecy every step of the way. And then finally, the point number three there, uh, 41 to 44. This is kind of the last thing that happened on that day. Cleanses the temple on the next day on Monday and 
So he's riding in, he approaches the city, and just before he stops, uh, just prior, before the city, there's the proclamation of the king. The proclamation is a proclamation of judgment, judgment on display. On the one hand, Jesus is this blessed, humble, merciful Savior who came to seek and to save those who were lost as he seeks to call sinners to repentance. And anybody that does, he welcomes them with wide open arms, no matter what they've done, no matter what sin they've committed. There is forgiveness there. He will embrace them. He will forgive them. He will adopt them into God's spiritual family. So he is a blessed, gracious, compassionate, merciful Savior. But anybody that willfully rejects Jesus Christ, his person and his message and his offer of salvation, they will face judgment. It's the only alternative. It's only two ways. It's really that simple, right? The right way and the wrong way. Heaven and hell, light and darkness. Scripture is categorical about that. They have to go together. You can't overemphasize one or the other. You can't overemphasize, oh, Jesus is just love, love, love. Love, love, love. He loves everybody. Everybody's going to heaven. Everybody's good. No. That is not the truth. And it's not loving to say that to anybody. And it's just as untrue to always emphasize God's wrath and His judgment and our wicked sinfulness and that's all you ever hear. That is not good news. That is bad news. We need the good news. Jesus loves sinners. And that's the balanced, perfect message that Jesus had. Blessed Savior. Anyone who comes to me, I won't cast out. But if you reject me, you will be rejected. Verse 41 when Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city. So he stops just before it. He's on that cult. He looks at this beautiful, beautiful city with all these people, knowing that this is where God once resided in the temple and the Holy of Holies. This is where he would uh, be crucified. This is where so much has been predicted and prophesied. And these were the special people of God, the Israelites, their capital city. And he looks at the city and he hears the rejection resounding in his, vo- in his ears still from the Pharisees who despised him. And it brings him to tears. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. Probably in heaving sobs. To be noticed by all. He wept over it. Jesus wept. Says the Gospel of John at the death of Lazarus. It's kind of interesting. The two times where Jesus wept happened at the end of his ministry. That was the culmination. That was the sign and the stigma and the response of his ministry for three years. He was rejected, therefore he wept. He came to his own and his own received him not, says John chapter 1. His own being Israel as a nation, as a whole. The majority, a remnant, yes, would believe. Few would believe, but most people would reject. And it made him sad. It overwhelmed him. And he wept. He heaved. He sobbed. Over Jerusalem. Saying in verse 42, if you'd only known this day, even you the things which make for peace. If you'd only accepted me as the Prince of Peace. If you only attached me to Isaiah 9, 6. Unto us a child is born, unto a son is given. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Prince of Peace. But they didn't. A wholesale rejection of Jesus the blessed Savior. You know, people still do that today. It's sad. It's sad. I got an email this week, I guess hot off the press, of some university in Florida, of a professor, and I don't know what the communications class or whatever it was, some college class, and the professor asked all of the 
students to write the name of Jesus on a piece of paper. And everybody wrote the name of Jesus on a piece of paper. And then the professor told everybody, put it on the floor and stomp on it. And everybody in the class apparently stomped on it, except for one. Refused to stomp on it. And that one student was suspended from class. Kicked out of class. Can you believe that? As far as I know, that person that refused to stomp on Jesus' name wasn't even a Christian. They were familiar with Jesus. They had, you know, affection for the Jesus they knew, but didn't have an understanding of the biblical Jesus, but they weren't going to do it. That happened this week. Isn't that amazing? Sad. It literally, when I read that, it just hurt my gut. Tied in knots. So this is, Jesus speaks of judgment. Because you have rejected me, willingly, knowingly, there's no grace for you, and so judgment is coming. God must punish sin. And you won't accept the punishment He laid on Jesus as Savior, then you need to be accountable for your own sins. And so Jesus says, and He's speaking now to the nation of Israel prophetically. If you'd only known me coming to offer peace through a spiritual salvation, through my death and resurrection, which you're categorically rejecting, but now, but now, they have been hidden from your eyes. The truth about me is going to be hidden from your eyes. Here's where Jesus predicted there's going to be a partial, huge hardening of the nation of Israel that Paul talks about in Romans 9 through 11. There's a hardening of the nation of Israel. You go to Israel today, as a, collectively as a nation, they don't want Jesus. As a matter of fact, with some of them, they get very angry at the very name. And this is what Jesus predicted. The truth about me will be hidden from you until in the future God will rip the veil away from the nation of Israel. The entire nation will embrace him someday and weep and mourn and cry over the Savior, the one whom they had pierced. There's a day of salvation for the nation of Israel collectively. And that is coming yet in the future. So this is bad news and good news. It's bad news in that Israel has rejected the Messiah. They are being hardened. There is judgment coming upon them, immediate, imminent, and also long-term all throughout history until Jesus comes again. But the good news is Jesus now and God turns away from Israel as a nation and turns to the Gentiles, turns to the rest of the world and offers salvation to anyone who believes. And if you're a Gentile, you should be saying amen. Because most of us are. He's the Savior of the world, said the Samaritan non-Jewish woman. It's hidden from your eyes. Verse 43. Here's the imminent immediate judgment Jesus promised. For the days will come. The days will come. When is that? 70 A.D. this happened. The days will come. 70 A.D. upon you, Jews, when your enemies, the Romans, will throw up a barricade against you. They're going to just start throwing up a bunch of dirt against your outside city wall all around it and surround it and build a wall higher and higher so they can just climb over your wall. So that your city is no longer protected. They're going to build a barricade up against you. We know we, this has even been confirmed from history. And Josephus writes about this incident happening. And they're going to surround you. The Romans will. They'll hem you in on every side. They did this more than once, by the way. It started in 70 AD and continued to go on. They will. The Romans are going to level you to the ground. And your children within you. And Josephus gives the grisly details of how the Romans did that. To the Jews, they didn't care your social status. They didn't care if you were male or female. They didn't care about children and babies. They were all, every single one of them, slaughtered. And then he says, the Romans, they will not leave you one stone upon another. Not one stone upon another. And we also know that they eventually went in and they tore down the temple, the precious temple, and they literally took the temple down stone by stone, piece by piece, so that not one stone of the temple remained. 
and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation because you did not recognize me, Jesus, the Savior of the nation of Israel. Sobering. So it ends on a sober note. And the crowds are cheering with jubilation. And the Lord Jesus, the compassionate Savior, is weeping all the while. He has a heart of compassion. He came to seek and to save sinners. And let's go ahead and pray to this blessed Savior and thank Him accordingly. Father, we thank You for our time together. Thank You for preserving history, preserving Your ministry, preserving the meaning of Jesus' ministry, His death and resurrection for us in Scripture. God, we're reminded that of the heart of compassion that Jesus had. Yes, He was uh, Lord Jesus. You are judge. You are the holy judge, but You're also the, the merciful Savior. Now we have the privilege to be reminded of your grace through celebrating communion in light of your death on behalf of our sin. We thank you so much for that great and glorious truth. And we commit this day to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Put up your Bible real quick. We're going to go into communion. And I want to read uh, in preparation of that Revelation chapter 19. And last week... I read out of 1 Corinthians 11, just a little phrase about, well, what is it we do every time we have communion? And that little phrase where Paul said, anytime we eat communion together, we are proclaiming the Lord's death. And proclaim means a lot of things there. It means uh, it's time to celebrate and have joy. And that's what I wanted to emphasize here, because in Luke 19, it said the crowds, they were celebrating and they were praising Jesus. And for the most part, they were doing it in ignorance. They were doing it for the wrong reason, ironically. Yay, Jesus is our Savior and Messiah. And they were praising Him, not understanding the fullness of how He was a Savior. And here we have the privilege in hindsight with the fullness of Scripture, with the Holy Spirit who lives in us and is our teacher and gives us Enlightenment and understanding to know the full meaning of Jesus' life, his ministry, his death and resurrection. And so part of celebrating communion is celebrating Jesus' death and who he was in his ministry with the full meaning in a way that these disciples could not at that time. As they worshiped in ignorance, we can worship with full knowledge. So I want you to look at Revelation before we partake of the cup and the bread. Uh, Revelation chapter 19, starting at verse 11. First time Jesus was humble Savior, and someday in the future He will come as a judge and as a reigning mighty king on that stallion, on that horse. And here's what it's going to look like in the future. John tells us, verse 11, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. So this is in the future when Jesus returns to earth on a white horse, on a stallion. He's coming as judge, not as humble savior. His eyes are a flame of fire. He knows everything and he judges accordingly. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And that's not his own blood from the cross. That is the blood of his enemies. Whom he crushes like grapes. And his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, those are angels and also saints, believers in glory. The armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, which are clean, were following Jesus on their white horses. 
And from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So if you are a Christian today, someday this is you. We are all actually a part of this scene that's going to happen in the future when Jesus comes back again to rule the earth as mighty, majestic king. He's going to bring his saints in glory with him riding on their white horses, not in humility, but in great glory. And so today, as you're taking communion, I, I want you, as we come up, hold on to, to it until everybody's grabbed it, We will, and meditate in your own heart, thanking Jesus for who He is, for His salvation that He graciously provided for you individually, forgiveness of sin, and also praising Him for being king of kings. And if you're a Christian, you know Jesus Christ personally, then you are invited and welcome to be a part of communion today as we proclaim his death together. And as we did last week, we'll have the first half of church. You come up here and then the second half, you can go out the back and then hold on to the cup and the, drink, uh, the bread until we can all take together. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.